Hello, everybody. I'm Heather Ward, SCA's Senior Manager of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Podcast. Today's episode is a part of our SCA lecture series dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of extensive live lectures offered at SCA's Specialty Coffee Expo and World Coffee events. Check out the show notes for relevant links and a full transcript of today's lecture. It's hard to believe that Expo has come and gone. Thank you all for joining us in Boston. It was a great show and there were so many excellent lectures. While you're making your way back home and we're processing all of this year's recordings, we again wanted to make sure you have a lecture from our 2018 lecture series to enjoy. As if the 88 lectures we hosted at Expo this year wasn't enough, we're also offering a fantastic slate of lectures at this year's World of Coffee in Berlin. Learn more about this year's program and get your tickets at worldofcoffee.org. It goes without question that the U.S. is currently locked in a very public debate over what type of country we want for our refugees. The U.S. has a long tradition of welcoming refugees, but is at crossroads of what it will look like in the future. The coffee industry is uniquely positioned as a major influencer in American society that can create structures to both welcome refugees and promote their acceptance in our local communities. As coffee companies and their customers increasingly demand that humanity is valued across the entire supply chain, integrating recently arrived refugees in our businesses is another way we can continue our global impact here in the U.S. Though our intentions may be in the right place, the realities of running a customer-facing, profitable business can raise questions on the realities to take part in this mission. Today's episode was a safe space conversation to provide lecture attendees with practical information on how to hire and work with refugees in their community and allowed the opportunity to ask hard questions. Please join us in welcoming moderator Rachel Tabor in leading our panel, Meg Karki and Doug Hewitt of 1951 Coffee Company. Also, to help you follow along in the podcast, I'll jump in occasionally. Good morning. Happy Saturday of SCA. Still a lot to get through. Um, my name is Rachel Tabor, and I am one of the co-founders of 1951 Coffee. Um, I'm going to be your facilitator today, um, helping to introduce and talk more deeply um, with Meg Raj Karki and with Doug Hewitt. Um, Meg Karki is... Oh, thanks for getting me started. Um, Meg Karki is uh, born in Bhutan. Um, his family fled to Nepal when he was two, where he was um, raised in the camp and came over over on the refugee program to the Bay Area in 2011, upon where he met Doug and I, and he has been really instrumental in helping 1951 to get started and how we um, produce our services and uh, was our first staff member and helped lead the cafe until a couple months ago as his wife had a cute little baby that's one month old. So we are lucky to have him here with us today, and he's in the process of moving um, up to Vancouver. And then also with us is Doug Hewitt. Um, I've also known him since 2011, uh, and he runs our coffee quality and the program side of everything that we do. Um, he's a deep experience in the coffee sector and working with refugee resettlement, especially around employment. Um, and that is the you know a lot of the skills that he brings to 1951. Um, my job at 1951, I'm the director of operations operations, um, which in reality means I do most of our financial compliance and management, along with our fundraising, because we are a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, So just to give you guys a little bit of structure on how we're going to uh, present today's program, we really love to start off in these moments to give some context of just 
What is the refugee challenge going on across the globe? How big is it? What is the word a refugee? It's actually a legal definition, um, which not people always realize. Um, and then after an introduction, I'm going to sit down and interview to pull out a little bit more of Meg's story to share you know, how he came to the U.S., kind of the power that coffee has been in his life, and then hear more from Doug and Meg about the realities of of working with refugees in the coffee industry. And that's where I really want to create today and where I'm actually really excited about this group and its size is that the deeper we get into this and the more experience, we realize that having safe space conversations where you can ask, I mean, please ask us real questions. There is no judgment here. This is a really amazing opportunity to help change perceptions, to open people up to ideas, and that's that's what we're here. That's our mission to be doing this for. So, um, And then at the end, we'll, we'll open the floor up to questions, um, of which please ask us anything you want. We're an open book, um, and that's, that's our mission to really be able to be that connector between a service provider or people, you know, refugees that are here in the country and employers, especially in the coffee industry. Um, so I'll go ahead and get started. Um, oh, refugees welcoming coffee. Um, so 1951 Coffee Company, that's our, our group. Uh, we were founded in 2015 um, as a nonprofit. This is very missional for us. Our goal is to support refugees with skills training and employment upon coming to the U.S. while concurrently educating the community about refugee life and issues. Um, We have two main initiatives to our um, efforts. Our first one is a refugee barista training program, which we have some photos of here, um, and actually one of our staff members to the right. But this is a two-week class to help someone that has come either as a refugee, an asylee, or a special immigrant visa to get jobs in the specialty coffee industry. And I really, we always like to push that theoretically. From the day we wanted to even think of doing this, we always wanted to be working in the specialty realm. I think that being able to show the U.S. and any industry that someone new to this country can perform at the top of it was extremely important to us. And so this two-week class happens at a coffee lab that is not part of our regular day-to-day operational cafe. Uh, It's around 40 hours, and it includes hands-on experience with, you know, all of the top equipment in the industry in terms of grinders and scales and espresso machines. Um, in addition to espresso preparation and theory and milk steaming, we also go over a variety of drip coffee and pour-over um, skills. We are doing a ton around vocational English, workforce, uh, cultural orientation to the U.S., uh, hygiene, safety. We practice on a square point of sale systems because coffee shops, we love our square systems. Um, and it's wonderful. And our graduation is this amazing moment where we open up the cafe to employers so that they can actually do a skills-based uh, interview and, and peek and see how you know, people are actually taking their order, what are their smiles, how are they presenting that latte, which is such a help for someone whose English you know, may not be their first language, who has nerves, who needs this job and is, you know, very, you know, justifiably scared of what's going to happen next. Um, We've been running that program since early 2016, and we haven't checked our tracking sheet, but I know we're somewhere just above about 120 people that have been trained and placed. Uh, We're going into our third year of programs, and we have this incredible team and really amazing employment partners that have allowed us to reach outcomes of over 80% of where people are finding amazing jobs in the coffee industry. Um, So that's been 
a fun ride and continues to, to run as it is. Um, the main program started in Oakland, and um, we have uh, finances to be also offering a smaller version of the program, only 25 people a year in San Diego um, from last year and then going into this year. So um, our other main uh, program, which people know us more for often, is our coffee shop. And uh, Doug and I quit our jobs in 2015 to start 1951 with the goal of the coffee shop. We wanted to be the employer we wanted to see in the world. We wanted to provide a platform for refugees to advocate for um, themselves and for people coming through the program and also an opportunity for employers and community members to have a different interaction with someone from this country. And, you know, so often from our positions we'll see someone that either cares so much about the refugee issue but they don't have authentic ways to really help or connect so they just end up doing something like an in-kind donation drive or, you know, a post on their Facebook. Um, or alternatively, we'll meet people that has maybe never met someone that has been through the program. They only read things in the newspaper and it becomes more of a situation of distrust. And so what we love about the coffee shop and we see day in and day out is just this really natural way to meet someone, to interact. And of course, I don't have to expound here that, you know, cafes are places where you can create a network, create friendships. You know, that's something that I think people here, you know, already get and we're bought into. Um, the cafe opened serendipitously um, one day after, two days after Trump came into office and a couple days before the first attempted travel ban, um, which was just this, it gave us this new platform for advocacy and talking about refugees that's been pretty incredible and has provided us moments like this that we could not be more thrilled with. And um, we employ 10 people at any one time. I was just sharing with someone earlier, I was like, okay, our staff members right now are from Burkina Faso, Eritrea, Burma, Bhutan, Syria, Afghanistan, and I think that, and it's always changing. Um, and Meg was our first cafe manager, um, and we have a new cafe manager now that we're sad to leave him, and we're just beyond proud to say that the cafe is 100% refugee run. And not only that, it's making money. We broke even and started going cash flow positive at five, sorry, sorry, cash flow positive at five months, and we broke even within our first year, and we're operating profitably. And I think, I'm, again, I'm the money person. They actually call me dream killer because I'm like, we can't afford that. <laughs> Which, right, if you're in charge of finances. But I think just for any business, for any moment when you're looking at this issue, it comes down to your business. Can I afford this? Can they operate within my systems? Can we be successful? And that's really why the cafe is necessary. And as we're growing, like, we're aiming to grow. Like, why the coffee shop continues to be necessary necessary wherever we grow to because we really need to show people and employers that this is possible. It's not only possible, you can serve extremely high-end specialty coffee, serve it well, have a fabulous reputation and community, and, and, and be making money on it. So um, before we delve in too much into that, because really this is where Meg and Doug, I really want them to bring out their experiences managing and dealing with that side, um, I want to provide a little bit of context about the refugee issue just so that when we're using certain terminology and just understanding where they fit into the system, it makes a little more sense. Um, so like I said earlier, the word refugee is a legal definition. 
And if you can guess in what year that came about, it was in 1951, which is where our name comes from. And it's a homage or throwback to the 1951 refugee convention that was held in Geneva, Switzerland, that first put forth the guidelines and legal definition and protections around you know, what it meant to protect and support someone who was fleeing their country. Um, the legal definition is my party trick, um, that I can say it, and it's really boring and long, so I won't go for it. But what it is, it is someone who has left their country for reasons of race, religion, nationality, or membership in a particular uh, social group or political opinion. I love to point out here that it does not include economic or climate migrants. Um, I often have people be like, well, what about, you know, with Haiti and everything? And I'm like, no, you know, I mean, I understand that people need to leave for a variety of reasons that are endangering their lives and their future. But we're specifically talking about the legal definition and the legal channels of people coming into the country. Um, in addition to the word refugee, you'll also hear me use two other words. Um, one is asylee, and that is someone who has come into the country on their own accord and and then they declare themselves for refugee protection when they get here. Refugee status is conferred outside of the U.S. Um, by the U.N. in whatever country someone has fled to, and then their channels of bringing here are, are conducted by the U.N. and the U.S. government. And the last thing is you'll hear me say special immigrant visa, or it often goes by SIV, and that is someone who has... Um, been granted a special immigrant visa, and right now it's those that have been working with the U.S. armed forces in Iraq or Afghanistan, often in logistics or translation, and their lives have are at danger because of the assistance they provided the U.S. And so those three populations... Um, makes up a humongous part of this country. And um, there are over 65 million displaced people across the world. Um, of that, the refugee uh, population that is officially registered with the UN is at um, 22.6 million people. There's new numbers coming out that it might be upwards of 24.5. You know, that number is always in fluctuation. But it is good to note that this is the largest refugee crisis the world has faced since World War II, um, which is why I think it is on, in the news cycle, it is on people's minds. It is present, and we can't deny it. Um, that's a lot of people to envision, and I just, it's striking to us when we, like, we're pulling up, like, well, I guess what country has you know, this many people in the world? And it's, it's Australia. Like, this is literally, like, we could populate an entire country of Australia with the number of refugees that there are, that is like the, the breadth of people that are out there. Um, you know, just, you see that number, what do people even start doing? Um, the UN works with refugees to find something called a durable solution. Um, the first is always the hope that someone can go home, and that's what they want as well. Um, the second, if that's not possible, that maybe they can stay um, in the country that they have fled to. That's not a very, that's not a strong option. You know, that might become an anchor or a sink for refugees and countries worry about that. Um, and so the third is often third country resettlement, which is what Meg and his family and how they made the way the U.S. But it's, a not, it's an insane process. It's hard. Um, as you can see on the screen, the average wait time is 17 years from the moment that someone flees their home until they even are going to get somewhere like a safe new place, such as the U.S. or another resettlement country. Um, it's roughly around 100,000 people a year. 
any number we use right now, we always have to justify it's changing. Um, it goes without saying that this country is locked in a battle about what, you know, and where refugees fit into our society from just a social level all the way up to the federal government. And so the president does work with the Congress to set a ceiling of what's the maximum allowable refugees that can come through this program each year. And right now the ceiling for the 2017-18 year is at 45,000 people. So that's my global context, um, just so you know where we fit into this. Cool. Hi. So, Meg, um, can you start off by telling everyone where your family's from? And who's uh, in your family? <laughs> I'm from Bhutan, and my families are from Bhutan. Uh, I have brother, sister, uh, brother and my mom and dad when they're in Bhutan, but we left, I mean, we kicked out of the Bhutan 1990s, and my, daughter, my dad was in a prison for five years because of the U.S. protesting for democracy and human rights. And at, at the age of two, I left Bhutan with my mom and my brother, and we flew to Nepal. So... In 1991, to give a little more context about the situation, so it was, I think it was about 100,000 people yep. were kicked out of Bhutan. And what was the reason? Uh, it's because of the Bhutan government want to feel like a one nation and one people. Like they want to make a Buddhism group. And there are two parts. Uh, in a, we live in the southern part of Bhutan. And the, there are two different ethnicities, uh, Hindus and uh, Buddhists, and they want to make sure that uh, they both are, speak the same language and they are not allowing us to feel the democracy. And there's the main region, and there's uh, people are protesting for human rights, and people are doing, we want a justice, or we want a democracy, we want our own language, we want our schools to be in Nepali also, but the Bhutan didn't listen to it, and they just feel like uh, we should start kicking. And the, miserable, uh, the most of the population in Bhutan was Nepalese ethnicity of Nepalese, and they think that uh, this Nepalese people are going to take over the Bhutan, and the king started to think about it. We should kick these people out of the country, and we flee to Nepal. So about a fifth of the population that were ethnically Nepali, and are Hindu as well? Yeah. Yep, Hindu. And so that was different from the other four-fifths, and so the monarchy wanted to have... um, a really great gross national happiness number. I think we've all, you know, if you think of Bhutan, yeah. uh, it's become a popular tourist destination right now. You hear them talk about gross mm-hmm. national happiness, which is this huge contradiction um, from what your family... So when... And I don't know if I've ever asked you this. When you... you, you mom took you and your brother. You were yeah. two. How old do your brother? I, it is... He was almost four years. Okay. Yeah. And so do you remember when you guys left and went to the rest uh, of the camp? No. Not. I didn't remember a lot, but I heard all this story from my mom and dad. We took a bus and my, with my mom's parents, and we came to the refugee camp in a really on the jungle side, and both sides of a river, and we are in the middle of like this island. And if the floor gets on this side, other side also floor gets and we are on the refugee camper. But I was two years old, and I spent all my refugee uh, life in a refugee camp for 19 years. And your dad was still back. Yeah, my dad was Bhutan. still in Bhutan in the prison. Still, yeah. yeah. And he came back after five years in a refugee camp. So Meg's family and the other 100,000 Bhutanese, Nepali yeah, that were kicked out, um, the UN rented land from yeah. Nepal to host seven different refugee camps. Um, you know, this is one of those durable solution moments. Well, you know, when, when you all left, your citizenship was canceled and they took all of your property, yeah. right? Yeah, I was born in Bhutan, but I wasn't citizen. I was until the, I wasn't citizen until when I was 26. 
with this I'm sitting in the BBS right now, and that makes me feel really great and honored. And, but my dad was citizen, and daddy still have a citizen with him, but it doesn't count. My mom, and it's canceled. I mean, it's nothing to do. We can't go back to Bhutan. Yeah. Right and now also, I can't go back to Bhutan. Oh, well, and, and Nepal wouldn't take him either, and I yeah. think that was it. It was one of those second country moments. Yeah. Okay, well, 100,000 are ethnically Nepalese. Maybe yeah. Nepal will take them, and Nepal's like, no, we, we can't do this either. And so the UN rented, rented land for seven different refugee camps, and I, I always pronounce it wrong. You were in Goldhop Camp? Yep. Okay, and so what was life like there? Can you, like, explain to me when you look, like, what did it look like? How did you live? What did the houses look like? Like, what was the camp like? I mean... To be fair, I mean, as a kid, wherever you live, if you have a friend, you enjoy the life. Yeah. And that's what I did, enjoy the life, play soccer, go to school, come back. But the life was terrible. I mean, there was nothing else. There's no future. There's no necessary food. There's nothing else. The, it's a roof of the thatch and a bamboos. And the, when you see from the <clears throat> from the, your bed, like a uh, bamboo's bed, and you can see the moon in the sky. And that's, I mean, that's terrible. And when it rains comes, it comes in your bed, right? directly and the floor get in there I mean the fire cut the refugee camp it's like a, if you see in the San Francisco the houses are so connected to it, like a, just like that our house are all attached and it's like 10,000 people in 1400 house and we are the family of four living in a one house it's like a soccer soccer goal that big is the one house but we are lucky that we are only four people but some people have eight people and they have to live sleep eat cook do their homeworks, do the everything inside there. Stock your fireworks and everything, all those things, like a firewood and everything else there itself. Who built the houses for you? Ourselves. I mean, the, the LWF, the other agency, refugee agency, give us, the, give us the thing, I mean, the materials and everything else. So we build the houses, yeah. And those are my granddad when they migrated. Now they live in a, a Saskatchewan in Canada. Yeah. So what was, what food, how did you guys get food? What food did you eat? Rice, five kilograms of rice for, uh, I think, for five, one person for 15 days. I mean, Who pretty much. to you? Was it? Uniture. Okay. Uniture, uh, mostly, and oil, little bit of oil, uh, vegetables, potatoes, garbanzo beans, and sometimes like a raw uh, bananas and so on, like a small vegetables, but it's not enough. So we have to, like my dad, have to work out of that. And we are not, we didn't have a right to work in Nepal also. We have to work illegally. We have to skip through the refugee camp to go to the work and come back. So you are not allowed to work technically. So it's really difficult. What did your dad do in Bhutan before you left? I don't know that. He was a uh, US car mechanical. He, worked, he did have a government job in Bhutan. He did have a government job, but nothing last. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, he did have a good job, and but we were forcibly kicked out because we want a democracy, and we want we don't want to live in those countries where they are doesn't give us our opportunity and anything else. Like right now, if you are a Nepali in the Bhutan itself, if you go inside the Bhutan, and if you think the Nepali can't do anything else, but we, if I'm there, and if I'm educated, and if I have that level of education, I will never be a pilot. They don't let you be a pilot. There are still people living in Bhutan. Those are Nepali, Bhutanese Nepali, but they are not allowed to be a pilot or anything else. So, what was it? Okay, so I know you know when you were a kid. Yes, for your friends when you're anywhere, it's fun. But what was like? Did you go to school? Like, what did you guys do for fun? Did you have a girlfriend? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, school is mostly the part, right? We go eight hours to school, Monday to Friday, and Saturday also a little bit up. That's where I learned this English and each subject. And Nepali, I'm really bad in Nepali. But besides that, we play sports all the time, like nothing. Go home, eat, go to the school, come back for a 15-minute break, come back home for lunch. You don't have to carry lunch like here. Come back to run, run away and play with the friends. And, uh, yeah, play soccer. Mostly I play soccer, go swimming in the river. You don't know how deep is there. <laughs> like here, <laughs> what is it going to be? Like you know how to swim or no? Don't know. You go collect like, the fireworks from a jungle and so on. Yeah, and I did have a girlfriend when I was in high school. Yeah. I mean, and she lives in Canada now. <laughs> She's my wife now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but did you catch that? Canada. So they got split up. Yeah. So, which we'll get to. So throughout the 1990s and 2000, the UN is starting to work with the Nepali Bhutanese yeah. community in these refugees camps to find out what's going to happen. Yeah. And I think, if I'm right, the turning moment was that in 2007, there was a fire at Gold Hub Camp that destroyed everything. Um, and we did have a picture. I didn't quite make it. And this is Meg and his family. Um, when they were younger. Um, and that was the moment where the UN really realized that, okay, people have been here for... 17 years now, it's time for us to start thinking of what's the next option. They can't go home, and they certainly can't stay here. So how long did you live in Gold Hop Camp before you were resettled in the U.S.? Yeah, in those periods... And what was it like? What was the process like of like uh, being vetted and going through? It is, it is really tough. I mean, like a, we did... We, everybody wants to go to the homeland. That's where your home is. Nepal is not our home. Where I was born, that's my motherland. I really want to go to Bhutan, and I re- still want to visit Bhutan. Uh, but it's really impossible. And at the time, in a refugee camp, we all went, like a protest and everything else we can do, like UNHCR support, UN agency, refugee agency, support us to go to the third, I mean, to the, our Bhutan, to our homeland. But India government doesn't give us a, la- a way to go. Like, there's no way we can go. And at and resettlement agency, UNHCR decided that this time it's not going to happen. Bhutan government not going to escape, like not going to take you back. So you, you guys must have to move on. In 2007, the fire cut the whole refugee camp, and all the 1,400 houses gone. Nothing, nothing happened that badly. Everybody ran away. It's in the night time, and. People started thinking, should we go to the third country, like United States, Canada, or New Zealand, so on, Australia also. And people like, some people still want to go to Bhutan, and they decided some people are skip away, and they come to the United States in 2007. And when people come to the United States, they started calling, they think that oh, life is great here, a lot of opportunity, a lot of food, a lot of things, a lot of, you can buy a car, you can buy a house, those, if you work hard, everything is here. You can get a, you get a green card in one year. And people like, people welcome us. That's what we heard. And my grandparents, my dad, mom came to the Oakland, California first. And that's how we ended up in Oakland. So, and we decided, we started process, but it takes like two or three years. Like, what part of the process took two or three years? Just like, like application? Beating, or? Yeah, a bidding process, like going through the application from the beginning to the end, like, like security, checks, sec- security checks. checks, medical checks, orientation, like a, because we never been to this country, and I never know about it. We didn't have a phone, we didn't have a smartphone like here, and we don't know anything else. Like, and we need a training, like we need orientation, something like a, how we gonna adjust in the new country. But the good thing is, like a, most of we travel with the family. 
everybody went so that we have a support to each other so that was the thing and the challenge was really difficult i mean like we have to they will bring a ticket and everybody's rushing to see that at the end of like 2010 2011 people crowded and the one like a pickup truck this kind of truck comes and people are like running towards the pickup truck and because they might think my ticket is come maybe my flight is come and so on yeah and dhs department of houseland security check the things cross from here and once you pass that test then you are welcome to united states so by this time megs and his parents had lived there for seven, 19 years by the time you came and they'd all grown up so their cases were separated Suffered. so meg's parents came first and he had to stay behind by six months later. and then meg came next and your brother his wife and son only came two years later yeah they came later? like three years later yeah three years later yeah. and so when you get to the u.s what is life like <laughs> what's it like i don't know you just you've never had a smartphone you're like chasing down a truck to get here and then you suddenly arrive in oakland california i mean I made Doug. <laughs> the guy since I've been. Is that good or bad? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, still with him. So. Uh, my family was here. My mom and dad arrived uh, six months earlier than me. I was really happy to see them. And I knew that, like, everybody's moving from refugee camp. People are, like, population is going down. And I knew that there's no future in refugee camp. There's fun. There's a lot of enjoyment. There's a lot of friendship, a lot of things. But there's no choice. I mean, there's nothing else you can do in the future. Here I can do something. Or if I can't do, my kid can do something. She can born as a citizen, U.S. citizen, and I'll be U.S. citizen, which is a proud moment here. But over there, you're maybe talented. Maybe you have something else. But you don't have opportunity and nothing else. And how long I'm going to stay as a refugee? And the word refugee, I really doesn't like it at all. I really doesn't like it. When people talk to refugees, somehow it really hurts. It really hurts to hear talking like, I've been here like for six years now, I'm a citizen and moving on. But still, I think about other refugees, like other people from Syria or other places. It really hurts the heart. I mean, so just to, just to get a little bit back to your process, not, not that yeah. I don't love what you're saying, um, but what, what were the challenges when you got here in terms of finding a job? Uh, the biggest challenge is job because of the reference and no resume. I didn't even heard the word resume before. before come to united states until the age of 22 and resume no experience english was poor very poor and i hunt the job for us eight months and i keep on looking for a job as soon as you get in the united states four months they can help you from the federal government or like a they can help you and within a four month you are supposed to find a job if you don't find a job within a four month they are kicked out of the program so you must have to find a job and i didn't find it but the good thing was my dad was working And we are not looking for a job like in IT or anything else. We don't have any. We are looking for a job like a dishwashing, like doing like a simple job, like making pizza, making doing something, like maybe a janitor or something like that. Yeah. So what's the first job you got? First job, I worked with a dog with the packaging of coffee. It was on call. He was a, he was a roaster, and I, I worked with him in a, uh, in a really in a good coffee. And I get a little experience in the beginning, which I didn't like a coffee to drink at all, to be honest. But I really like the smell of coffee when they're roasted. And I still like to eat the beans when it's roasted. I really like it. But now I love coffee. Like a black coffee is my favorite. <laughs> Not a cappuccino or latte is that much, but black coffee is the best. And, so, and after that, I find a job in a little seizure in the east part of the Oakland, which is a really dangerous area, part of the Oakland. And you have... 
you don't know anything and i have to take a bus in the there the little caesar the area was like a bulletproof glass so think about it, how dangerous six was that inches thick six, him six and inches thick <laughs> and so i'm risking my life to life to have a job over there and after that move on to chipotle in san francisco started working there going college and we have a i he was still in irc and he started helping find a job for other refugee through that what i have learned in my experience and and he started working so on now ended up in 1950 and coffee yeah cool Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Doug a few questions, and then we'll get back to you in a minute. Um, so, hi, Doug. Hi. You and I have worked way too long together. We've known each other since 2011. Um, we met while working at the International Rescue Committee. I have always been on the fundraising and operations side, which is why I still do that. But you have always been on the program side. Yeah, I was going to give you a little more of an introduction. So just so you know what Doug's background is, um, he started out as coffee industry work um, roasting for Boot Coffee Consulting, which is out of um, San Rafael, or yep, uh, in California, um, which is where he met Meg and helped him with some of that work. He was also the volunteering concurrently with the International Rescue Committee, and I was the volunteer coordinator. And so we had an open position for someone that would help with the uh, employment program, and that is what Doug started on. And of the four years you worked there, his role eventually grew until he was the coordinator of the entire resettlement program there, helping from pre-arrival through jobs um, for over 400 arrivals a year. And so can you give us, you know, the, the State Department sets up the refugee program, and there are nine resettlement agencies that conduct this program. The International Rescue Committee, which we often call the IRC for short because it's a mouthful, for which Doug and I worked at in Oakland. And so can you give us um, just a little bit more of the process of what the resettlement agency is, is doing to help families when they arrive? Sure. So the refugee resettlement process, if you kind of go through the different government websites that are involved in this process, Department of Homeland Security, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, the Department of State, um, they set a goal of six months to economic self-sufficiency for, for any refugee entering the country, regardless of previous experience, language, skills, education, anything. Everyone has a similar goal of six months to economic self-sufficiency. Um, the way that the program is set up is when someone is is you know in the refugee camp and the UN has said this population is in need of resettlement. They make recommendations to the countries that have signed on. There's about 20 countries on the around the world um, that have signed on to accept refugees. For a long time, um, the U.S. had a commitment to accept roughly 50% of that number, um, and until this year, the U.S. had actually always exceeded 50%. Um, this year, they're actually probably going to come in just under 50%. With the anticipated number, though, we're hearing that they, most refugee agencies don't even think we're going to get to half of the anticipate, anticipated number. So anticipated number would be 45,000, um, but most people think it's going to be around 20, 21, 22,000, whereas, you know, in, you go back three years ago, we were peaking out over 100,000 people um, coming into the country. Um, and so there's a, a vast change has been taking place in that process. But once someone is, you know, selected and they've gone through, you know, being recommended to the U.S. government through that long vetting process and finally are approved for resettlement in the United States, a refugee agency, of which there are nine um, main ones here in the United States, have a contract with the U.S. government to facilitate that resettlement process. They're usually notified that someone is coming about two weeks before that person arrives. Um, when they're notified that that person is, is on the way, um, they are given a stipend. 
um, to facilitate that refugee resettlement. The stipend is supposed to help them through the first 30 days, but can be used up to 90 days. Um, and that is approximately $1,000 per person. That is the only money um, that a refugee will be given to officially facilitate their refugee resettlement in the United States. Um, that money is usually used in that first two weeks to rent an apartment. So, you know, just like any other apartment, you've got to pay the first month's rent. You also have to pay a security deposit. Um, they have to stock the apartment with furniture. There are certain things that the U.S. government require must be purchased and brand new, like a mattress, um, which are, you know, I can, I can see reasons why that would be. There are certain things you can acquire new, or sorry, used, um, like a, a sofa. Um, but there are, you know, certain things that have to be present in the house before a, a refugee arrives in the country. Uh, they have to stock the apartment with groceries um, and then just necessary supplies for running a house or an apartment um, in the U.S. So you can imagine... A lot of times that money goes very, very quickly to the point when a refugee arrives in the country and they're given whatever remains, um, it, it's not going to be a lot. Uh, now, refugee resettlement happens in about 200 uh, different cities uh, here in the United States, but this n number is exactly the same. Okay, so if you're in Boise, Idaho, and Des Moines, Iowa, and San Francisco, and New York City, and Miami, you're going to get the same amount. Um, and so, like, I, I can say in the Bay Area, you can rent a room in Oakland, in the area where Meg and I live now, in that area for about $600. So think about that. If you have $1,000 to resettle someone and you pay the first month's rent and the security deposit, suddenly you're $200 in the hole already. Um, so that means refugee agencies very often have to find other funding even to just facilitate the basics. Okay? Um, once, once that has taken place... Okay, um, refugee agencies are required to provide um, English language and cultural orientation. So someone arrives in the country and they want to provide them with English language training and cultural orientation. Now, this is a box that can be checked. It does not say that you have to supply X amount of orientation or X amount of English language. Okay, so... That means someone could facilitate a one-hour cultural orientation when someone arrives the first day in the United States, and they can technically mark that box and say, we have provided cultural orientation to the United States. Another agency could provide a two-week extensive cultural orientation, and they can also check the same box. So you can see it really depends on the, the resources of a local office to how much English language and cultural orientation can be provided. At the same time, um, refugee agencies are they're going to have to connect people to employment very quickly. So that almost all refugee agencies will have some form of employment program um, that they will provide refugees to help connect them with a job. It's important to note here that that six months to self-sufficiency isn't just because, hey, this is our goal that we want to accomplish. It's because something very important happens at that six-month point. When a refugee comes to the United States, the plane ticket that brought them to the United States is not free. It's a loan made to the refugee that at six months they have to begin to repay. And that, that loan... hits their credit report. It begins to hit their credit report. So they have to be economically self-sufficient, not just to be able to pay for their own stuff, but to begin to pay back the loan that brought them to the United States. So that is, that is the process. And again, when refugee resettlement agencies are, are working on this, they are doing as much as they can with as few resources as they have available. And sometimes it's amazing to see what, what agencies can do to make this happen, but very often it's still not enough. 
So obviously employment's critical. Like that's that's a given. We can see it. Uh, Meg had referenced some of the challenges um, that are just unique to people new to the country. Right. But can you lay out at least what you saw in terms of what was so hard for people to find jobs when they're new here? Right. So when someone is new to to the United States, and maybe if they We'll, we'll even take a best-case scenario. Someone who has a Ph.D., they speak fluent English. Um, and you think, wow, they, they should be able to land a job right away. Very often it's not the case, um, simply because maybe they have a Ph.D. and, you know, whatever they studied is not recognized here in the United States in the same credentialing you know, system. Um, you say, well, okay, well, maybe they can get reconnected with that professional career. Sure, down the road, but they have to get recertified. That can take months. Even landing a professional job, anyone who's ever applied for a professional job knows that, like, you put in the application and maybe three, four, five, six months, you'll hear about an interview, and then, like, there's these long processes that this doesn't work for. Um, and so, you know, or they're trying to apply for a job that they can work right away. Maybe they're trying to be a, a waiter, a waitress in a restaurant. Maybe they're trying to, you know, just to, you know, to work a simple job. And everyone's like, oh, you're, you're, you're overqualified. I'm, I'm sorry. We, you know, we know that if we hire you for this job, you're not going to stay. You know? And so they, they won't give them the opportunity. And then you take other people who maybe they, you know, they don't have a lot of formal education. Maybe their English level is very low. Um, maybe you know, they you know, grew up in a, in a, a very rural, environment and now they're suddenly in the middle of a very urban environment and they're not sure how to operate and you know work on you know time schedules and the barriers that people will face very often you know and they'll end up at an interview in front of an employer and the employer's just like I, I I need someone who can just I can stick in the job and they can run with it I could provide minimal training and they can go and then on top of that you'll also have employers that are like you know are, are, are refugees legal Okay, okay, they're legal, but why don't they have any of the documents that I'm, I'm used to seeing when I hire someone? Like, are you sure that this is right? Um, E-Verify, it's a system that the U.S. government runs. Very often, refugees don't have the right documents to pass E-Verify, even though they're legal to work in the U.S. So there's a lot of problems that, you know, that, that prevent refugees from being able to initially land that first job. Um, even, even, you know, I, I remember going to a lot of interviews where I would talk with the person all the way to the job interview, prepping them and talking in, in English. And they would go into the interview, they'd come out of the interview, and the employer would be like, oh, sorry, like, they, don't, they don't speak any English. And I'd be like, what do you mean they don't speak any English? And you know, I'd be talking to them afterwards, and you know, again, in English, and I'd be like, you know, oh, how did it go? Like, what happened? And the person would be like, you know, I was so nervous. Like, all of my English language just left my brain. Like, I, I didn't know how to answer the questions. I didn't know what they were asking. Or they put them in the middle of a, a group interview where they're going up against people that are just like, you know, they're competing with them for the job, and it suddenly becomes impossible for them to land it. So. So. Let's let's marry the two. Let's marry coffee and refugees and see right. how this works. So, how is coffee an answer to the challenges or just the situation that we see? Right. So, I think one of the things that that we recognized um, right away in the coffee industry is that you know the the biggest thing that a refugee is looking for is a dignified opportunity to get their life started. They want to have an opportunity to show who they are. They want to have an opportunity to, to be themselves and not be themselves in, in the back room, isolated from where everything is happening. They want to be in the middle of things. Um, and I think that 
we all know, I mean, we talk about, you know, cafes especially as being these places where community happens, where community is built, where connections are made. Um, and I think that, you know, when we're thinking, what is a place that is readily accessible in most neighborhoods, you know, around the country? And there will be cafes somewhere nearby. Um, and so that puts them at the core of our society. I mean, we think about coffee as this intensely American thing. I mean... Coffee, you know, everyone wakes up, you know, the idea is, you know, you wake up, you either make your coffee at home and you go to work, you go to school. Or as soon as you get to work or get to, you know, school, if you're a college student, you get coffee. I don't think they serve at high schools. But, um, you know, like, coffee is this, this ritualed part of, of American life. And so we're thinking, what type of a job would be a place that would really allow refugees to move from, you know, some of the other jobs that they're able to land initially and put them in a place where they're right in the middle of where life is, is happening. And then ultimately, I think, realizing that even though coffee is considered very, very American, it's extremely global. When we begin to work with the, the people who are coming into our training classes, very often we're talking to people who grew up in coffee-producing areas that worked on farms, had grandparents parents that worked on farms, you know, who grew up in places like, you know, like Syria that had some of the first coffee houses in the entire world. And so their history in coffee goes way further back than even our own history. And so it's like this, in many ways we see it as like this perfect marriage between something that is so intensely American, but something that is so global as well. So, so Meg, can you tell us what it was like to be a barista? When you first started as a barista. (laughs) Yeah, first I went to the training program with the 1951 coffee, and it was really, first I didn't get it. <laughs> Actually, I didn't know the names also. Like, it's really hard to pronounce the cappuccino in the beginning, like a macchiato, cappuccino, like a latte, those things, never knew. And the, the espresso, especially espresso, doing espresso thing was really terrible. I mean, like uh, the source and everything was, how it going to be work out? I don't know what is drip coffee, what is batch brew. There is, and people call house coffee, and it's the same thing at the end. But I didn't know it's the same thing or a fasting, and it's really complicated. And by the time I started doing, and keep on doing, keep on doing, I get it because I. But something I knew that I've been here for a while, and I started in 2016. Uh, that I can learn, I can learn, and I can do this. I I have hope. I can do this because I like to take a challenge. And that's the thing. I did it. And started from barista. I mean, training program to barista as a senior barista. Then move on to cafe manager and helping, especially. And when the new barista came to the cafe, at the time, I'm helping them to see what is I faced. And I told them, you, you will do better than me. That's the thing. I always did it. And there are some people whose English level is really low, but they are great worker. I love to have them. If I have a, if I have a cafe, my own cafe, I'll take them any day. I wish I can pay them overtime and everything else like that. They're that great. Their art is that skillful. Their work level is there. They make it clean. They work always on time. They're helpful. They don't mind to stay overtime. Like most of the people doesn't like to stay overtime. Like they want to go home. They want to chat with the friends. They want to have something. But they, they need the money because they're not only supporting their life in the United States, not to pay rent, but they need to support in their home country to their mom and dad or their family. So, Barista, and I'm now, I'm not, I don't work with the 1951 because I'm in a process to move to Canada, and I'm looking forward to work in coffee industry. And the, when I see coffee industry, 
When I came to the last year in Eureka Symposium, that, from that time, I noticed how big is the coffee industry. And I want to grow in this coffee industry. You didn't need a degree. You didn't need a graduate. You didn't need anything. You just need a loan. You just need an experience to go. And I really like coffee industry now. And I want to be part of it. And I want to keep on moving. Yeah, no matter wherever I go. Yeah. yeah. So, I imagine now we've like got your heart in it. And now your head's going like, okay, that's cool, but it will not work for me, or I have no idea how this would work. And this is really where the heart of it is. Like, I think we definitely want to share some of our experiences and challenges and how it works, and then we want to make sure to leave some time. And if we don't, we're here to obviously talk after. But, okay, Doug, like, I'm a cafe owner sitting or an employer sitting in the audience, and I want to start doing this. What are some action steps that you can start taking? All right. So, um the first and most easy action step that I would recommend um, is contact refugee agencies in your city. The easiest way to find this is just type in the name of your location in Google or whatever search engine you would like to use. Um, <laughs> and um, just type in, you know, I don't know, Helena, Montana, and, you know, refugee agencies or refugee resettlement and see what's there. There are 200 cities that refugee resettlement is taking place in the country, and there's a good chance that somewhere in your region someone is doing refugee resettlement. Um, and so that's, that's the place that I would start first. Very often, these agencies um, have uh, employment services that they're offering to, to refugees. Now, be aware these employment services don't often involve skills-based training, which is part of the reason that we created the, the program that we did, is to kind of offer something to refugees that would be skills-based and industry-based. Um, but they are offering, you know, uh, helping connect them to jobs. They're providing them with interview preparation, helping them build a resume. And very often, you know, once uh, a refugee is, is hired, they will help with the I-9 compliance. So, the, the, you know, all, making sure all the documents are in place and making sure that you know exactly which, you know, which forms they have so you can, you can fill that out. Very often they will accompany them to, to interviews. They will sometimes even, um, I know we spent countless hours sometimes getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to take people of their first day of work and helping them figure out their transportation to and from work. So the refugee agencies are often there to provide this service. They're just looking for companies that will, will, will say, hey, we're open to this. We're open to this idea. Um, and sometimes they can even come into your cafe and, and work with you and work with your staff to provide training. Okay, what is this going to be like? What is this going to feel like? What are some things we need to be aware of? Um, and so really reach out to those the re refugee agencies so they can also give you a clear picture of what is happening in your area um, so that you get an idea of, okay, how can we begin this process? Okay. Um, so, and now that as we've our employers as well, right. um, can you share some steps of how like operationally you can start? Like, okay, that's like that's the logistics, that's the black and white. What are some of those like soft skill things operationally? Uh, owner or manager needs to think about. Okay, so I think the first thing I would say is is start small. Okay, um, you, you may have, like, if, you, if you really buy into this idea, and, and maybe you even have a, a large company and large capacity to hire people, still start small. Go ahead and, and work with an agency or, you know, and hire, you know, one person into your company initially. And, and work through that process with them. Figure out what it's like to, to you know, see the different documents you need to, to onboard them. Um, and figure out those processes, you know, before you kind of decide to go, hey, we're going to hire 10, 15, 20 people. Because remember, refugees are often people who 
when they're here to the country, they're in an economic need to get a job swiftly. Um, and if you try to hire 10 people at once and then suddenly you're kind of like coming up against, you know, different issues with your hiring processes and stuff like that, just go ahead and start small. Figure it out and work with one person to support them. That's what we've done a lot with our partner cafes in the Bay Area is we talk to them, okay, just bring one person in. We will work with you on helping you to set up a system. So um, if you actually want to click twice. All right, cool. Um, so part of that is the flexibility in the onboarding process. So one of the things that we've done in our training class is um, the last day of our training class, we actually have what we call an open cafe time. And we invite employers to come to the cafe. And we run it just like it's any other cafe. We have the little point of sale system, everything, except we're not taking any money. Um, and we allow for employers to see our trainees working in the cafe. And part of that came out of that what I told you about before. When someone would go into an interview and they were so nervous that they couldn't really display who they were. And so I think really thinking about how do you do your interviews? Are you providing an interview situation that allows this person to be comfortable, relaxed? Um, I know that as an employer and having you know hired people in other agencies before, that very often we kind of play the game of psychologists when we're hiring people. We ask these like nebulous questions that aren't really what we're after. And I mean, the easiest one is like, so what are you going to be doing in five years? You know, we all want people to say, I'm going to work at this coffee company forever, right? And then we all know that when everyone says that, they're not really meaning that, but they've answered it the way that we want them to, so we're going to hire them. And so I, I think really reducing that down to asking the question that you intend to ask. Um, and really trying to make the person feel comfortable so they can show you who they are and thinking about how to bring them into your company. Um, obviously, the I-9 compliance stuff, making sure that you're, you, know, you really pay attention to all the documents that are, that are on there and talk to the local agencies about you know, which documents refugees often have so you can make sure you, you get that done for, for your business practices. The other part in, in flexibility onboarding, and this comes to once they start their first day of work, try to reduce the time from when you offer them the job to when that first day of training or work starts. Um, we, you know, we've worked from some companies that it takes three or four weeks for that entire process to go through. A lot of it's online. A lot of it's really challenging for people who don't have computers to complete things. And so they're going to a library where they can get an hour worth of computer time. You know. So really try to think about, is your on onboarding process, is it accessible? Then once they start their first day of work, okay, are you putting them in a place to thrive? And that's where we talked about building a culture of empowerment. And I think this is something that doesn't even just apply to refugees that you're bringing into your company. But when you look at your company and you're like, wow, we have everyone here looks really the same. And, you know, we've hired all the same kinds of people. And, you know, you basically have like one mode of operation. Everyone who comes into the, you know, your cafe, the first day of work, they're going to be at the register. And that's where we're going to start. And then eventually, you know, two, three months down the road, they might touch the espresso machine because we really, you know, we, that's the way we want to work people through our flow. And realizing that very often for a refugee coming into your cafe, especially if they, if they don't feel confident in their English, not whether it's good or not, but if they don't feel confident in their English, they're going to be really nervous at a cash register. But you may put them at the espresso machine. You may put them at a, a pour-over stand. And for whatever reason, they just get it. And they can fly with it. So really think about what are your processes in your cafe for bringing people on? Can you be creative? Um, you know, we had, we've had cafes that that was the way that they operated. And initially they realized, wait, we can teach people how to make our cold brew and how to make our, our pour-over a lot quicker than we can teach them how to work the cash register. But if we had just said, well, this is our process and you can't thrive at the cash register, you're just not going to work out for us. They realized that they actually they're going to work on all of the coffee stuff 
and then work on the cash register at the end. So really think about, are you creating a space within your cafe that people can grow? Can, can they find a way to be successful initially so that they build that confidence, they build their, you know, their experience with English? And I think really looking at, at diversity as a sustainable growth strategy um, you know, if you look at your cafe again and you see, like, wow, this is, this is all very similar. We're all, you know, really the same. I mean, you're missing out on a lot of opportunity for your company to grow. Um, you know, we had a, a, a thing this past summer where we actually asked our baristas from the seven different countries that we had hired them from to introduce a special drink each week through the summer. Um, we're in a college area, so summer is, is really kind of like a slower time, and we wanted to do something to, to invite the community into our cafe. And so, you know, I mean, you often see at the barista competitions, people have to come up with special drinks. And so we encourage our baristas to do that and to put something on the menu from their host country during those weeks. And a lot of those things are ideas that once that happened, we saw how successful they were, and we've been working to incorporate those things into our larger our larger menu. And I think when you bring people in who, who aren't just like you or just like your typical you know, hire, you open yourself up to new ideas. You open yourself up to ways that your company can grow that you may not have even seen um, before. And so I think those are um, kind of the main things that I, that I think, you know, working you know, with agencies, looking at your onboarding process, and really setting a mindset for empowering people to be successful once you've, you've brought them in. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think this is the time where we would really love to take some questions. I mean, if no one has questions, we can obviously keep jabbering, like we could talk for another hour. But um, <laughs> I think it's, you know, every cafe is different. Every cafe is a different culture, a different process. And we love to be able to help people navigate or think through it. I would say we could ask questions from the microphone, but I think we're enough group that as long as you can trust the projection of your voice, I'll make sure to, to regurgitate it. So um, just raise your hands and I can and tick you off. Um, okay, let's get started right there. It's a good question. So the, the question is if our trainees are paid throughout that time. They're not. Um, the program, it costs us about $1,800 per person to put them through that two weeks um, because we are so heavy on um, facilitator, teacher to, to students. We're not going to go above a certain ratio. I think the class really maxes out at about seven or eight people because then no one's going to get enough time to learn how to steam milk or pull shots. Um, so, yeah, it's a dream. We'd love to get there, um, but it's just... We can just offer it for free right now. Right. But, so. And I think that's part of the reason that our training class is only a two-week program because it's really meant to kind of fit within that early employment stage. Not everyone – now, we also work with people who've been here two or three years but are still in that need of employment that you know, improves their lives. But we really tried to make it a, a two-week program. You make it a month. You make it you know one Friday a week for six months. A lot of those things don't really work. So we made it an intense program for two weeks so that we could very quickly try to facilitate employment. Um, there are other programs that we've heard where people actually hire someone as a barista for 12 months and then it terminates at 12 months um, and they pay them, you know, and that's their training style. Um, we didn't want to have a, a, a program where we hire someone and then at 12 months we kind of drop them off and like, okay, now you need to find another job. That's not the way we wanted to, to operate. And so, um, but that's the reason we did ours in, in a two-week module. But yes, they are unpaid. But it is free. So, Do you have another question? Yeah, go for it. An attendee is asking, when working with your local refugee resettlement agency, are they picking your trainees for you? Good question. Yes. 
but also not completely. Um, so they, we, we basically network with all the different, different agencies, um, and we let them know what we're doing. We're actually a part of what they call the East Bay Refugee Forum, so it's a kind of oops, sorry, consolidation of all the different agencies, and we meet like once every two months or something like that um, to talk about things. But we let them know about our programs that are going on. Anyone can refer anyone to, to our program. We also made sure that that was a very simple process so that it happens quickly. Um, but at the same time, I mean, a lot of times people who've been through our class are referring their friends. And we've tried to make that open as well. Like, it's not like you have to come through one of these agencies. Um, so it, it's kind of a both ends. Some people just find us. We've had a, a guy that found us online and asked if he could be in the program. And so... And then I think once they refer people to us, our staff will meet with them and often at a coffee shop and have a nice coffee that we'll treat them to and talk about what it means to be a barista, the physical parts of it, the, you know, having to be out in the, you know, talking with people physically, what it's like, the schedule. So we do that to make sure that this is someone who really is ready and wanting to work and, and will thrive in this sort of career. Yeah, the question was our success in job placement. So we hover around 80%. Sometimes it's 77, sometimes it's 82. But um, it's a good thing to say that 80% of our people find jobs. And the majority of those are in the coffee industry. We do not require people who finish our program to get a job in the coffee industry. Again, recognizing that they need a job as soon as possible. And if a furniture store offers them a job and they want to take it, we're not going to be like, hey, we gave you training. You can't take that job. You know, like we, yeah. we want them to take it. But, but again, a part, of, a part of what we also attempt to do, and we've seen this happen a lot, where people just leave our class just having confidence that, hey, I can do something here. And it gives them confidence to just land a job, period. And that's, that's yeah. success for us, too. I think there was yeah. in the back. Yeah. So. An attendee is asking, how much do you pay your refugee trainees? Very often, um, so I, for example, in, in San Diego, one of the refugee agencies there has a very specific youth employment program um, because also for, for families, usually one income is not going to be enough for, for a family to, to survive in, in the U.S. And so very often they're looking for ways for the wife and the husband and, you know, if there's an older child who's between 16 and 24 who, who can get a job, you know, they're very often looking for ways to, to facilitate that. So you will find some agencies that have specific employment programs programs for that group. Um, and I would say a large number of refugees would fall into that area. We Sometimes it goes a little bit above 24, but, you know, yeah, I mean, th there are a lot of refugees that kind of are in that category. 50% of refugees that are resettled are children. Um, and so even if they're, you know, two or three years down the road, there will be some of them that, you know, maybe they came to the U.S. when they, when they were 16, and two years of high school in the U.S. is not going to get them on a college path right away. And so they're going to be looking for a career path that doesn't necessarily access college education, and so, or at least immediately anyway. And so this would be, like, the same kind of opportunity that you could provide for them. So, Yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, I would just kind of like look at these different agencies in your area and, again, see which ones pop up. Again, these are the nine main refugee resettlement agencies. A lot of times they will put an affiliate office there. So, like, maybe there was already an agency doing work with refugees, and they're like, okay, why do we need to open an office there? We'll just empower this office to facilitate it for us. So you may not see one of these names specifically in your um, in your city, but the, these are the ma nine main ones that usually you can get on their website and find out where their offices are operating as well. An attendee is asking, can the refugees choose which city they live in? 
Yeah, it's kind of um, when I used to describe this, and I don't mean this in a flip way, but it's a little bit like a sports draft. Um, the you know where where agencies or where offices pop up, um, you know, over the years is often based on international or global. Uh, trends or what's going on. A lot of offices in California, you know, in the San Diego and the Bay Area um, opened after um, the fall of Vietnam and when there were Vietnamese refugees coming over and that was a very, even in Seattle, you know, that was something timely and, and distance and geography wise um, that matched up well. And so agencies or in different cities have popped up for those reasons. Um, when a person is deciding where they want to come, um, you may have a decision in it and you may not. And so, like, when Meg's parents came here, like, did your parents have a choice, were they? Uh, Usually we did have a choice because my grandma was here. Your grandma was Because here. You, they want to reunion the family. But mostly my grandma and my uncles, they didn't have a choice. So they landed in uh, Oakland, right? But some people in a... Uh, uh, North Carolina. They didn't have a choice. They just put a random number there. You are pulling the number and you, you are this place to go. You are in this state. You have to go to the Minnesota or like some places like that. But exactly, if you have a family already there, then you do have choice and you have a high chance. But if you don't, then you have no choice. Yeah. I mean, imagine be- some, of, some of Meg's friends ended up in, in Anchorage, Alaska, Alaska from, yeah. from Nepal. Yeah, so you can, you can imagine, I mean, Anchorage is probably a great place, but you can imagine yeah, coming from trop- subtropical Nepal. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Alaska and some in a, yeah, places like that, Alaska and some in a North Dakota, yeah, Green Fox and yeah, so on, yeah. An attendee asks, why do so many refugees choose to settle in the Midwest? Is it because that's where their $1,000 stipend goes the furthest? Part, part of it is that um, cost of living is something that the U.S. government evaluates in an area. And an agency has, in order to justify the number of people that they're going to put, you know, that, that, you know a, a refugee agency would say to the U.S. government, we think that we can resettle this many people. Here's kind of our study of, like, the cost of living and the lay of land. And so, again, you know, in the Midwest, you may find a lot of places where, you know, the cost of living is a little bit lower. I mean, you do have to kind of balance that with the job market. Right, and that can also be the challenge of certain areas, and so trying to find that that balance. But I think remembering again that some of the expect or some of the expectations are, are unrealistic, and so you know being able to prove that you can resettle this number of people, it, it doesn't often again doesn't mesh with the reality on the ground. So, an attendee is saying their cafe is in the Midwest, in a city that receives refugees, but there's a lot of strong opinions in both directions. They are considering hiring refugees but they're concerned about the safety and privacy of their potential refugee employees. It's a hard line. I mean, we've talked with other companies about this. I mean, I think from one perspective, um, people that when we're training people and there's maybe a job open with us, we're very forthright that, you know, when you come work for 1951 and you're working in our shop, like you weren't, it is known that you came through the refugee program. People are going to ask you about it. They're going to ask you your story. Now, we always empower our staff to be like, you only share as much as you want to, but that's just part of the job of working here. And so I'd say, and, and oftentimes people are like, no, like that is not what I want to do. We're like, great, we'll help you find a job somewhere else where you can just like, you know, start, you know, integrating into the community in a different way. So I think that would be one thing I would suggest is that whomever you're applying, um, if, if you want to make that a part that you share that with them? Someone, we had an opportunity for someone to work in our cafe, and we kind of explained what Rachel was talking about to her. And, you know, she decided that because many people from her country also come to the U.S. as international students and immigrants, she didn't feel comfortable doing that, but still really wanted a job in the industry. So having partner cafes 
that we could work with to provide a, a job opportunity for her to just be another employee at the cafe. No one would know that she's any different than any other employee there. Allows us to kind of do both things. Like for refugees who are like, you know, like, like Meg, or like, I want to support other people and speak out about this yeah. issue. They have that awesome. opportunity. Those who just kind of want to be here and just want to live their life. They are like, same thing like my wife doesn't want to talk about refugees. So all the time, tell to the people where are from Nepal. I'll tell from Bhutan. Because she doesn't want to bring her childhood and like those memories sometimes that get in really thing. But for me, I want to be strong and I want to talk and I want to challenge. And I want to tell to the people that whatever the Bhutan gross national happiness is the not true. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like some people really want to and some people know and you have to figure out that one. Like sometimes you might have to ask to them like uh, the refugees and whoever working in your cafe or like in your community, so on. I think from a safety perspective, because I definitely, like, being on the operational side, understand what you mean. Like, it opens this, like, million of folders in your head. And we did. We were worried about that. I mean, there's, like, no way to get around that. Like, we definitely were like, huh, we're definitely standing for something at a time and place when... And when we're in Berkeley, California, so it's a little bit different a reception. I'm from Minnesota. My husband's from rural Iowa. So, like, I definitely can um, relate. Um, I know we met with our – we had our entire staff sit down with the Berkeley police um, a Berkeley police officer before we opened to just talk about um, and have, like, a really open conversation so that we had a lot of trust in them, that they were giving us tips and tools on, like, what do we do if someone comes in the store and they're being really loud and yelling things? Like, and they were able to share with us some really great tactics from that end. And um, uh, what else have we done safety-wise? I think the, the one thing that, like, it, I obviously talk about refugees a lot. And I will have, like, single-serving friends on planes. I have some Trump-supporting family. Um, and so the one thing that I can, like, never – anytime I talk with someone one-on-one about, like, what the refugee program is and, like, how it is part of this, like, cultural fabric of the U.S. and it's an honor and the honorable thing that we're doing, I've never had someone walk away and not at least from, like, a very humanistic level, like, really support it. And so I think it's also that, like, how you're framing that conversation in – and how you're streaming it. Are you sharing it on social media? Is it something in store? Like, are you trying to make it one-on-one? Are you trying to be, like, really stand up and stand out about it? I mean, I know something that's been a benefit to us is that we do not talk about politics. Like, we are not here to talk about politics. I'm here to talk about humans. And I'm here to talk about how, like, this is a human worthy of our love and our respect, and they're trying to work hard and better their life. And there is not one person in this country that does not, that does not resonate with. Like, that is an American value regardless of, like, whatever side you're on. An attendee is asking whether it's been a challenge integrating refugees into specialty coffee, as opposed to a more mainstream cafe brewing non-specialty coffee beans. What do you think, Mike? I mean, Doing quality coffee in our cafe, has it been difficult? No, I mean, it's, it's been a pretty easy. Like, the, especially the specialty industry, coffee industry is easier. Then, like, I can see that the like, people working in Starbucks and, like, working in, uh, like, our cafes, like, they have so many drinks, and like a specialty coffee industry have like a special drinks and a special measurement, and they have like fancy tools and all those things. Those makes much easier, I think. Like uh, in terms of what I see from working with the refugees and, and in trainings and, and myself, that makes much easier than because you have a shorter menu and like you have a specific menu and like like you don't have like a three size cup of drink like those kind of yeah. things also, and it makes really different. You have small and large. Or like maybe one size cappuccino or whatever, yeah. yeah. I mean, to briefly add to that, I mean, that's part of the reason that we enjoy working in the specialty coffee industry is because there is this idea of quality and simplicity going hand in hand, which, you know, I mean, when we we talk through all our different brew methods and and things like that, I mean, 
it, yes, it is. I mean, if you really want to get to the nitty nitty gritty of it, yes, it is rocket science in, in an essence. I mean, it is extremely complicated. But then at the same time, learning how to reduce that down to the most simple elements of quality are really important. And in essence, that's also a skill that we need to have in the industry to be able to communicate to our, our customers. I mean, they're not coming in understanding extraction rates and like all of these things. And so the ability for us to work with our staff and being able to communicate that. Um, and, you know, for them, I mean, honestly, I would say most of our staff now are better at latte art and things like that than I am. Um, the work that they've been doing. I mean, it, it's unbelievable some of the things that I see our staff doing now. Um, because they, they found a place that they belong and they've taken off with it. So... Cool. Well, thank you guys so much. And yeah, thanks. Thanks thank so much you. for the conversation. We have talked to you. Thank you so much. That was Rachel Tabor, Doug Hewitt, Meg Karki at Expo in 2018. Remember to check out our show notes for a full transcript of this lecture and links to our World of Coffee lecture offering this June. This has been an episode of the SCA podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.